Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. There's hardly any place in the entire Bible where the conflict between a king and a prophet was more dramatic than that between Nathan and King David over the Bathsheba affair. Hello, I'm Mark Rutland. Welcome to The Leader's Notebook. I'm so glad that you've joined me for this particular episode. I know it's going to engage you, and I I believe you're going to really profit from it. At the end of this broadcast, someone is going to tell you how you can get Of Kings and Prophets, my newest book. I'm in the middle of a long series. I'm going to be talking about Of Kings and Prophets for some weeks. I have been. If you haven't heard all of them, they're all archived. I hope you'll go back, listen to the whole series, and I believe you'll be blessed by each one of them and by all of them together. I want to say to you that it's here it is, the first week of November, and Christmas is barreling in on us. So why don't you do all your Christmas shopping uh, by getting uh, of kings and prophets for everybody on your shopping list. You can also get some of the other books, particularly David the Great. It's a great combination piece. I think of these two books. They're not exactly part one and part two, but I think of them as kind of fitting together. And uh, there are all kinds of other books that are there in our store as well. And I hope that you'll just fill out your entire shopping list. Everybody in America ought to have a copy of of Kings and Prophets in their Christmas presents. I'm particularly pleased with this chapter today. This chapter is about the conflict between Nathan and David. I like to collect uh, historical artifacts. One of the most interesting pieces that I have happens to be a belt buckle that was taken from the body of a German soldier killed during the Battle of the Bulge. I was very um, blessed to receive this. A friend of mine who's now gone to heaven gave me this belt buckle. He was in the Battle of the Bulge, and he himself was wounded there. But he took this belt buckle and then later gave it to me. The buckle has on it a wreath, a circle wreath, on which is perched an eagle with a swastika gripped in its mouth. That's not surprising. It was a Nazi soldier. But underneath this are the German words, Gott mit uns, which means God is with us. That Nazi soldier wore that belt buckle into battle with the determination to kill his enemies, Americans in this case, representing a system and a vision that was pure evil. Yet somehow he believed, or his Side believed, someone believed that God was on their side, at at least enough to wear the words into battle. The belt buckle speaks dearly to the problem when politics and prophecy blend or collide. History is replete with examples of this conflation of politics and prophecy. The extremely complex Hundred Years' War between France and England which uh, has been the subject of novels and historical uh, nonfiction pieces and doctoral theses without end, Uh, this war began in 1337. In its most famous battle, the Battle of Agincourt, 
was memorialized by Shakespeare in his great play, Henry V. But the whole war was a bloody, dramatic affair, particularly between the uh, interplay between Charles VII of France and Henry V of England. By 1425, the war had gone so badly for France that the nation was in danger of complete subjugation by the British. Circumstances began changing, however, when an ignorant, illiterate peasant girl claimed that she had received visions of French saints. She said those saints had told her to go to the Dauphin, the heir apparent to the French throne, and tell the Dauphin that God had sent her to help the French win the war and then place him on the throne as the next king. Strangely enough, the French were actually eager to believe this young girl, this illiterate young girl from a farm. There were two reasons. One was the question, was she right? In other words, what if she had indeed seen such visions? What if she was telling the truth? If, if French saints had appeared to this farm girl and told her to go to the Dauphin and tell him how to win the war? Maybe. The second was that the French were losing so badly, they realized uh, in their cynical political way of thinking that if they let her do what she wanted and they continued to lose, they could pin it on her. They could blame her for the whole loss. They allowed her to do as she asked, which was to wear men's armor into battle and to lead troops. The tide of the war began to change dramatically. It was truly a strange episode in history. That teenage girl named Joan, despite wearing a man's armor into battle, wouldn't carry a sword. She refused to carry a sword. She said she would carry, however, a staff with a flag on it when she rode into battle, which is what the French Authorities and military leaders let her do. She was eventually wounded by an arrow during one of the great battles, but there was something about her that inspired the French troops. This, this fragile girl in men's uniform and waving the flag, and the tide of war began to turn in France's favor dramatically. Obviously, the visions she received, dedicated Roman Catholic that she was, were highly political. And her leadership was entirely military. Ultimately, Joan of Arc, as she came to be known, even sat in on military councils and gave advice. This ignorant young peasant girl. In time, however, she was captured by a cadre of French people who were favorable to the English side. And they sold her to the English who tried her for two crimes. Blasphemy. The first blasphemy because they doubted her visions. And interestingly enough, cross-dressing. They convicted her and burned her at the stake. Later, Joan of Arc was canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. She's known now as St. Joan. The challenge when considering Joan of Arc is this. Did she receive those visions from God? Did God even care who won the Hundred Years' War? Were her visions real or were they manufactured? The second thing we struggle with when we consider Joan of Arc is this. If they weren't real, why did the British burn her at the stake? If they weren't real, how did she get so deeply into the heart of French politics and into military leadership? She was a teenage girl who couldn't even read. 
You see where I'm going with this, right? It's always dicey when revelation dreams and prophecies serve political and military ends. I can give you a more personal example from my own life. I was speaking at a college chapel some years ago, and we were facing a national election. In my talk, I said that I didn't tell people how to vote. I wasn't going to endorse a candidate from the podium. However, I did announce that I will not personally vote for a candidate who would appoint judges to the bench willing to rule in favor of abortion. I told the audience that day in chapel, mostly students and faculty and some outsiders, I told the audience that abortion was an important issue to me. I believe it was important to God. It was a biblical issue. So I had to ask myself which candidate would commit to appointing judges opposed to abortion. Afterward, the wife of one faculty member approached me, and she was absolutely furious. She said, you use the platform of this university to deal with a political issue. That should never happen. In reply, this is what I said. Now, ma'am, I want to ask you a question. What about all those preachers in the southern part of the United States in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, and even in the 50s, who used that very excuse, not mentioning politics from the platform, who used that very excuse, who wouldn't deal with the national sin of segregation. They hid behind that same wall that you're describing. Don't mix politics and religion. What about them? What about Dr. Martin Luther King when he did speak up? Was he a prophet to the nation or was he a politician? I said, now, ma'am, there are times when the church must speak. I, I, I went ahead and pressed her further. I said, tell me about slavery. What if you were attending a church at the time of slavery and your preacher preached against slavery? Is that politics or religion? We certainly fought a highly political and military war over it. So was it a political issue or a spiritual issue? Can a man indeed own another man? Is that a biblical issue or a political issue? Oddly enough, the lady replied, Well, I see your point, she said, but abortion is different. She didn't take the time to explain the distinction between abortion and slavery and other sins that people preach on from the pulpit. But the, the major lesson from all this is when prophets and politicians converge, it gets dangerous and messy. A king is always a politician. A prophet is a voice from another world. At least we hope so. He's supposed to be. She's supposed to be. When the two conflict over political matters, it's often ugly, disorienting, and leaves more questions than answers, like Joan of Arc. When the two agree, it can be worse, depending on who is agreeing with whom. This warning about the intersection of the prophetic and the political is at the heart of much that has been happening in the United States. There was a false prophet in the time of Jehoshaphat, the king in Judah, the southern kingdom, who was a good king, a righteous king, and a king in the north, Ahab, who was a wicked king married to a wicked woman named Jezebel. Uh, Jehoshaphat agreed to a military alliance with Ahab, which he never should have done. It was a mistaken judgment, but he did. And as they were going to take their armies, now a larger army because the two of them, and march out to battle against a foreign foe, Jehoshaphat 
turns to Ahab, this wicked king, and says, isn't there a prophet here that we can ask about whether we're doing the right thing and doing it the right way and doing it at the right time? We need a prophetic statement here on this military campaign. Ahab volunteered that there were hundreds. He had hundreds of prophets. And so he called them, and they all affirmed the battle. Oh, yes, you're going to win, your majesty. No one will stop you. You can't be defeated. Go. Even one of them, a false prophet, all these false prophets, one of these false prophets named Zedekiah, I suppose hoping to dramatize uh, his prophetic utterance, took iron and fashioned horns like the horns of a bull and put them against his head and, and mimicked a bull. And he said to Ahab, you'll go out like a bull and you'll, you'll gore the enemy. They will be defeated by your, the horns of your military conquest. Jehoshaphat sensed something was not right about these prophets. And he turns to Ahab and he says, isn't there anybody else here? Can't we, can't we ask anyone else? And uh, Ahab, <laughs> interestingly enough, he says, okay, there is this other prophet. His name is Micaiah, but I hate this guy because he never prophesies good about me. And Jehoshaphat says, well, let's ask him. So they bring Micaiah and they tell him all these other prophets have prophesied victory for the allies. What do you say? And he begins, he must have had a mocking tone in his voice because Uh, Ahab, at least, and probably Jehoshaphat, pick up on it because he he begins saying, oh, yeah, these prophets couldn't be wrong. Oh, sure, you're going to win. Go, go, you're going to win. And Ahab rebukes him and says, how many times have I told you? This is a strange contradiction. Listen to this. How many times have I told you, only tell me what God tells you to tell me? And so Micaiah, the prophet, says, all right, then if you want the truth, You're not only going to lose this battle, Ahab, you're going to be killed in the battle. You'll never survive this battle. Ahab turns to Jehoshaphat and says, see there, I told you. He never prophesies good about me. Now, isn't this a strange, strange intersection where this wicked king senses that a prophet is giving him a false prophecy, orders the real prophecy, and then is angry when he gets it. Now, that is the the contradiction between the prophetic word of God and the political, if you, if you consider a, the military action of a nation to be political, the intersection between a prophetic word and a political need. So when Ahab challenges this prophet, this true prophet, Micaiah, he says, when I come back from the battlefield, I'm going to put you in prison. And Ahab confronts this prophet angrily. When I return from the battlefield, you're going into prison. But Micaiah, unintimidated, says, if you return at all, I'm a false prophet. So it's fine to make a political prediction. In the last election, God knows we had them. Everybody had an opinion. Everybody had a prediction. And make your political prognostications. You can even state various reasons why, preachers can even state various reasons why one candidate stands for issues that are biblically significant. Could even state that, as I did in that election uh, decades ago. And I, I believe that that's perfectly appropriate. The issue comes when someone says, 
thus saith the Lord. Now it becomes prophecy. Now you must be held accountable. Just as as Micaiah, the true prophet, says, if the king comes back from this battle at all, I'm a false prophet. So when those who whose prophecies turned out not to be true in the last election, they should repent. They should confess. Some did. I was proud of them and say, I learned my lesson. I was wrong about that. I missed God. And next time I'll be more careful. The body of Christ should also hold them accountable. And the body of Christ should hold itself accountable. What do we listen to? That's the reason that the gifts of the Spirit are manifested in community is so that the, the corporate wisdom of the body politic can say, that's, that's not a prophecy we'll receive. Or if we received it, we were mistaken in our discernment. And we must get better at discernment. And you must get better at really hearing from God. There's a major lesson in all this. When prophets and politicians converge, it's dangerous. A king, a politician, those are the voices of worldly power. The voice of the prophet is to be the voice of heaven. Thus saith the Lord must mean, thus saith the Lord. And if it's wrong, it's taking the name of the Lord in vain. This warning about the intersection of the prophetic and the political is at the heart of the ministry between Nathan and his relationship with King David. It was a very mixed relationship. On the one hand, Nathan was almost an advisor to David. He became more or less a kind of uh, palace priest, if you will. And at David's deathbed, Nathan was there advising him in how to overcome a, a coup d'etat that was an attempt to, to supplant the, the designated heir to the throne, Solomon. Nathan was part of the, of the group, that, which really was a political and military group at the end of David's life, to make sure that the will of David and the will of God to put Solomon on the throne was fulfilled, and not Adonijah, who with Joab was leading a basically what should be called a coup d'etat, a palace coup. So Nathan was not just a prophet. He was David's friend. He was almost like, I would say, like a family priest, a palace priest. But when David sinned, when David sinned with Bathsheba, Nathan came before him and confronted him, not privately. He confronted him publicly in front of everyone. He called him out. If you remember, he told this story about a rich man who took a poor man's lamb and stole it from him and cooked it and served it to his friends. And David, he energizes this uh, anger in David, this judgmental anger. And David pounds his fist on the throne, on the arm of the throne, and he says, this man deserves to die. And then there is this dramatic moment, Shakespearean, I would say, moment where Nathan, this little prophet, points his bony finger in the face of King David, and he says, you're that man. You are the man. What a, what a dramatic moment. What a powerful moment. And what a risk, a high risk for Nathan, the prophet. All David has to do is snap his fingers, and anybody would have killed him. Remember, this is not a, a 21st century republic. It's not a parliamentary democracy like England or uh, uh, some other countries. This is a, an empire, if you will. David is a, the king. His word is a law. There's no check on him. There's no Supreme Court. 
All David has to do is snap his fingers and someone will take the prophet Nathan's head off. And instead, David confesses. He says, you're right. I did it. I did it all. And repents. Now, that that kind of conflict, that's where the prophetic confronts and convicts the political powers that be. That is, that's what brought down the horrible laws of segregation in the early part of the 20th century. That's, that's what brought it down was prophetic action against the nation. There has to be that. There has to be voices that will rise up and speak against national evil. Abortion is a national evil, and it is a prophetic voice that says, this is wrong, this is evil. But, but when prophetic voices subject themselves to the political, then they become like Zedekiah, prophesying victory for a king that they, with whom they want to curry favor. The more salient point in this entire context of Nathan and David is the power of the prophet facing up to the power of political leadership of the king. David embodies, he personifies everything we know to be true about military political power. Nathan embodies everything that we believe to be true about prophetic authority. And that conflict where prophetic authority calls out political power for its sins, personal sins, as in David's sin with Bathsheba, and as John the Baptist's confrontation with uh, Herod the Great for his incestuous marriage, quote-unquote marriage, with his sister-in-law. That's, that's prophetic authority calling out wickedness in high places, speaking truth to power, as everybody wants to say now. But it's high-risk prophetic authority. David now represents political power. But look at his reaction. Instead of fighting, arguing, resisting, instead of, instead of calling Nathan a false prophet, instead of having Nathan killed, he just, he just melts with repentance. And, and he, he calls out to God for forgiveness, and he records his own sin in Psalm 51. It's total, complete repentance. When a king, when political power, when politicians, when a nation hear the voice of prophetic authority and confess and repent, that is the, that's the place where prophetic authority can change a nation. The nation can, or the national leaders, politicians, can hate it, can despise prophetic authority, can confront it, can imprison it as Ahab threatened to imprison Micaiah, it, have it killed as Herod had John the Baptist killed, it can do that. So the prophetic confronting the, the political is a high, that's high risk ministry. But when the political refuses to hear the authority of, of prophetic power, that's high risk as well. I uh, was in London, England some years ago, speaking at an international Bible school 
and the students were from all over the world. They were almost none of them were British. It was an international Bible school. I'd lectured all day and had dinner with them. And then just before I was to leave, they just asked if I would pray over each of them and lay hands on them. There were about 20 or 25 students, international from all over the world. I went around the room laying hands on them, praying for each of them, praying for them to be anointed and blessed and used. And it was a very positive, moving, but very positive moment. Finally, I came to one boy about whom I knew absolutely nothing. I'd never had a conversation with him. When I laid hands on him, a pain, literally a, a physical pain shot through me. And I strongly sensed the Lord speaking in my heart to say, I've prepared this young man to go back to his country and lay down his life. The older you get, the younger everybody else looks. This young man looked to me like he was about 12 years old. And I remember thinking, God, I, I don't want to say those words to this boy. He, he looked like a child. But in answer, I felt God speak back to me, this internal conversation going on inside of me while I was laying my hands on this Bible school student. I felt the Lord say to me, if I can't trust you with the whole message, why would I give you any of it at all ever again? So I laid my hands on this young man and I, I found myself weeping. And I just said, in all the humility I could muster, I said, son, anybody can miss God. And I can miss God more than many do. But I'm going to tell you what I heard when I laid my hands on you. And then I told him what I thought God had spoken to me. When I did, the teachers and the students in the room began praising God loudly. It confused me. And I thought, I'm not sure they heard what I said. The president of that little Bible school came up to me and said, We heard what you said, Dr. Utland. The reason we're praising God is this. Last week, God revealed in a prophetic service that this boy would go back to his country and give his life for the gospel. Today, when you spoke it, it was a witness of the presence of God. We're, we're not cheering in praise of God because he's going to die. God forbid. We're cheering in praise of God because the word of God has been confirmed prophetically. I said to the boy privately, how, how do you feel about all this? It, 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 I was deeply moved and, and, frankly, somewhat confused. All these other students were praising God for a, a prophecy that had been spoken over him now twice by two men from two different countries that he was going back to his country and die. I, I just was humbled in his presence, and I said, what, how does this all make you feel? Here's what he said to me. All the other students in this Bible school came here to learn how to live for Jesus. I came here to learn how to die for Jesus. I'll never forget that moment. It confirmed to me that the ministry of the prophet, and I do not consider myself to be one, but the prophetic ministry has to be filled with tears and fears or it would not be real. The closer the access to the throne the greater the challenge and the greater the risk. The more access a minister, any minister has to political power, the greater the danger is for that minister to bend his message, compromise his message, and 
to be confused himself about what he wants to happen and what God says is going to happen. I pray that God will raise up prophetic voices all over the world to confront political power when it's in sin, call it out, and speak with boldness, speak truth to power. But I also pray that it will be the clear, true Word of God and not personal political bias compromised by the fear of losing access to power. God forbid. If we're going to speak truth to power in this dangerous century in which we live, we're going to have to say the whole message God gives us and not the part that the king wants to hear. Well, I'm glad that you tuned in for this episode of The Leader's Notebook. Now, I want you to stay tuned. The announcer is going to tell you how to get this book of Kings and Prophets and all the other books. It probably doesn't matter to you to hear this, but it matters to me to say it, and I I like to say it, and I want to say it. I do not take anything for the sale of any book in this way, online, in bookstores all over the world, all royalties from all of my books, all 20 of them, go to support the mission work of uh, global servants, particularly our girls' homes, House of Grace. So I hope that you'll buy books, enjoy this book, and fill out your Christmas list. Until we meet again, I'm Mark Rutland, and this is The Leader's Notebook. To order a copy of Dr. Mark Rutland's new book of Kings and Prophets, please visit the store at drmarkrutland.com. Enter promo code KINGS30 to receive 30% off of each book, or call us toll-free at 888-823-8772. Thank you for listening to The Leader's Notebook.